Welcome to Modern Career. I'm your host, Mary Humiston. You may be thinking about changing, advancing, or even reinventing your career. We want to help you do that and live your full potential. In each episode, I cover work and career topics, leveraging my 30 plus years of global HR leadership and through interviews with other career experts and professionals from around the world. Subscribe today and visit modern-career.com for blog posts, career stories, career coaching and workshops, and more. Let's jump into our next episode. Welcome. Our guest today is Everett Harper. Everett is a CEO, entrepreneur, strategist, and author of the new book, Move to the Edge, Declare It Center. It offers a pragmatic take on solving complex problems, making decisions through uncertainty, and it offers leaders a new framework for success in an increasingly uncertain world. Everett's currently the CEO and co-founder of Trust, a human-centered software development company, recently named as an Inc. 5000 fastest growing private company. He's a rare combination of a black entrepreneur with Silicon Valley pedigree, a proven record for solving complex problems with social impact, and he had the foresight to build a company that's been remote first since 2011. Salary transparency since 2017, and they anticipated the importance of hybrid work, diversity, equity, and inclusion by a decade. Everett has a history of firsts, among them the first in his family to go to college, He participated in the first NCAA National Championship for Duke University. In his career, he's leveraged those first to help millions of others, from helping fix healthcare.gov at Trust to fighting poverty worldwide as a board member of CARE. He worked for Bain & Company, has an MBA from Stanford, and is a Duke scholar from Duke University with a BS in biomedical and electrical engineering. He grew up in a small town in New York's Hudson Valley and currently lives in Oakland, California. Welcome, Everett, and thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Uh, I really appreciate being here and really looking forward to this conversation and hope your listeners really enjoy it. Excellent. Well, maybe you could give us a little bit about your background highlights and career journey just to set the stage for us. So you started as an engineer. You have an engineering educational foundation. And then where did your journey take? One of the things I learned being an engineer, biomedical and electrical engineer, is that there are born engineers. I'm not one of them. (laughs) I worked really hard and completed a degree. And at the same time, I knew that that wasn't really my path. So I started at Bain & Company. They really appreciate people who can understand problem solving and structure how to solve challenging problems. Then worked for a bunch of years at a place called Self-Help, which is a community development finance institution. And what we did is create a secondary market for low and middle income families who were excluded from the housing market, and in some ways the uh, business market as well. How do you create products and services that enable people to buy their first home, which often is the ladder for sending a person to college? After that, I decided I started my first business doing DEI consulting, went to Stanford for grad school, first as a PhD in organizational behavior. And then I decided I didn't want to be a professor full time. So I did the MBA instead and got a degree in education. And at the time, looking at learning design technology, how do you design interfaces for people to interact? So you can see the early stages of the human-centered part. Then it was a bunch of startups, everything from early learning startup 
to Linden Lab, which is an early virtual world pioneer. They made Second Life. So it was one of the world's first virtual worlds. All this crypto and virtual and metaverse stuff, I'm very, very familiar with that from back in 2000s. And uh, I know where all the bodies are buried <laughs> as well. Some of the, There's some really great things and some things that really don't work. And then my co-founders and I all came from Linden Lab. And after a little bit of time in between, we started this company. Outstanding. When you say, I knew something wasn't a path for you, obviously a fabulous foundation that you've used, but how did you know? Was it a lack of real passion for it? Or how did you know it wasn't your path? The real moment came my sophomore year. I was the day before an engineering degree and I had tickets. <laughs> I had tickets to go see The Time and Prince right after um, Purple Rain. So amazing tickets. And it was the day before an exam and I gave up the tickets to one of my colleagues who was in my engineering class. They went out, had a great time, came back. I'm still studying. He's tired. He's just lit up from this show and I'm still working out this problem. He says, oh, what's up? And he's describing it. And he says, oh, this, 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 this. And he just solved it. And, and then he went to sleep. What I realized is that there's certain patterns, there's certain insights and that people can have. They can see it. And I couldn't see it. Now, I could study diligently. But I didn't just have it. And that's when I knew, eh, maybe this isn't. Now, I continued because I really wanted a degree. And it took me a while to really kind of reconcile that. But by the end of my, my time there, I was like, if I was building something, that was actually really cool. I did well in the things where I actually built things with my hands. But for some of the really intense theoretical work, it just wasn't a fit for me. And I like theory, but I don't like engineering theory. And it is. It's a big journey, but that's a, an important question that many face. So you have also said that as a CEO you assume that your job changes quite frequently. I think you've said every quarter. Tell us about that. And also, what do you think it is about you, maybe your mindset, your experiences, that has allowed you to be able to flex with that and even in many instances, be ahead of the game? How have you been able to be so successfully agile? There's a couple of things. One is I've learned over time, I have a pretty high tolerance for ambiguity. And what that means is I can assess different risks and can wait sometimes for things to be ambiguous because sometimes the answer or the path or in some most times the better question comes up. So being tolerant of ambiguity starts to provoke asking more questions and asking more questions really starts leading towards innovative or interesting solutions to challenges. I think the second is being an African-American CEO. Navigating uncertainty starts out as a survival skill, to be, to be candid, and not taking for granted what is certain. And that means that I sort of have a little bit more of a homing beacon in terms of being able to be comfortable with uncertainty. I can navigate through that. And a lot of folks who have been on the margins in whatever country or whatever circumstance have had to navigate that. I think the third is being comfortable with being uncomfortable in two ways. One, some of the things I just talked about. Two, being a soccer player, you 
put yourself right at the edge of your body's capability. And you then you keep going. And learning when to push hard because you, it's good and when, it's, when to realize, no, that's too far is a skill. And then just emotionally, if you're the one who someone goes between your legs with the ball and then scores the winning goal, there's no place to hide. And I got used to that at an early age. And so it's real uncomfortable when the rest of your teammates are looking at you and saying it's your fault. The being able to come back from that is another essential skill of being able to handle changes. I think that finally where this all comes together is I start to be able to put connections together that other people can't see or can't see yet. And I really enjoy that because I just draw from a variety of different circumstances. You saw my background is pretty diverse and being willing to let all those things gel. Sometimes it leads to nothing at all. And I just throw those away. And other times it leads to something that's really interesting and being willing to kind of pursue that out of curiosity. I think those are the four things. I really love that. And I think, as we said, you had many firsts. It's not always comfortable to go first, or right? No, no, no. To be first. So you must have had some of these inclinations, characteristics, abilities at a young age, too. Maybe. I think I was the first and only on the soccer team in various honors classes. So yes, in some ways, fish can't describe water. So I don't remember not being. But the, the thing I'll share with you is my mom Grew up in Homewood in Pittsburgh. It's a, a neighborhood in Pittsburgh, all black area in Pittsburgh. Grew up pretty underprivileged. Graduated from high school with my dad, who was in the Navy. My dad got recruited to IBM because he was on a nuclear aircraft carrier. And he knew how to work with electronics. And that was really exciting and interesting back in 1963 and 64. So they moved up to small town in Hudson Valley. And she was the secretary. But then she got pregnant with me and IBM said, nope, can't do that. We don't like pregnant women. I mean, it's just amazing. And my mom said, well, bye, I'm, I'm out. She came back after having three kids 10 years later and noticed that the world had changed. It's like, wait a minute. It isn't just military and universities coming with big punch cards and so forth because she could see people because she was in the secretarial pool. There were businesses and other organizations. He said, there's something to this technology thing. And she decided she wanted to be a programmer, what they called them then. She took the tests, failed it the first time, came back, passed it, and then had a 20-year career as a programmer, right between sort of assembly language, right at the end of the mainframe era, all the way through to the dawn of the PC era. All of that she covered. And so she was absolutely a pioneer, but also she saw an opportunity coming from a place that you wouldn't think someone in the receptionist pool, but she recognized something and then was diligent enough to really go for it. And so that wasn't evident to me then, but in reflection, there had to have been some of that just uh, rubbing off for sure. And it's kind of an amazing story. She's had a 30-year career with only a high school degree. Yeah, a clear role model. Had to have inspired and absolutely showed the way on many fronts. Let's get to the book. Yeah. Move to the Edge to Clear It Center. I love the title. Just launched. And as we said, it offers a framework for leaders. It's all really about managing and being successful and ways to navigate in the times that we're in, but also clearly the times that are going to be. What's the inspiration for the book? And maybe share with us a couple of the big points or premises that we should think about as professionals or leaders, and then we'll kind of unpack it a bit. Thanks for asking. Where the 
inspiration came from is an observation in the middle of 2020. I've been thinking about complex problems and complicated problems and things like that over the last couple of years because that's a lot of what we do at work. But after the pandemic, I'm here in California, so massive forest fires that were climate related and the murder of George Floyd and that summer where all the protests were happening. I saw a lot of leaders feeling flummoxed by what was going on. And behind closed doors, folks were saying, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to say. I'm afraid of saying the wrong thing. And these were really experienced, very successful leaders. And I thought to myself, well, why is this? And I realized that some of it was these are problems that they have never experienced. There's no playbook for this, it's unprecedented. And so the tools that they had were not appropriate to what the problem was. I started to look further into it, and I realized that all of us, certainly of a certain age, we were trained to be the first in our class to raise our hand to have the right answer, because there is a right answer. Is there a right answer for climate change? Is there a right answer for how to deal with this pandemic? There are multiple answers, and there are more questions than answers, but we weren't trained that way. I think for a lot of leaders, it was really uncomfortable to not know the answer. So I thought, huh, how can I contribute to this dialogue? At Trust, we help leaders navigate through transformation when they don't know what to do next through complex problems. My co-founder says, we run to the trash fire, not away from it. Try and translate some of the things that we've learned to help leaders say, okay, if you don't know, great. How do you get started? What processes do you use to do discovery? How do you use hypotheses? How do you test things? How do you get a diverse perspectives to make your answers better? And then second, how do you systematize? So if it's just, let's all work really hard and let's grit our teeth through this. It's two years since the pandemic started. The teeth are worn down. (laughs) For sure. (laughs) (laughs) You cannot grit your teeth through two years of a pandemic. And so how do you systematize so you can scale what you've learned? that you can share what you've learned to the rest of the organization, and really importantly, how do you sustain what you've learned? We know burnout's real. These two things, how do you learn through uncertainty and how do you build systems, are two of the pieces in the book. The last piece in the book is all the frameworks in the world don't matter if you aren't taking care of yourself. As a leader, you have to really come to grips with how do I react in uncertainty? And then train yourself in preparation. It's like a muscle. The first couple of times, it feels awkward to work out. And then over time, you get stronger, you get better. And then when you really need to flex that muscle, you're already ready. So there are different techniques in the book about that. This is fabulous. I think you well know, gosh, all levels of leaders have experience and can benefit from what you're saying. In the past couple of years, the very top of the house, CEOs, C-suite, have really struggled. And burnout is higher than ever because if you grew up and most did in the command and control and to your point, believing you had to have answers and you have to be in charge. And it's really, really challenging when you find yourself in this kind of an environment where it's actually the reverse. Yeah. I think what I learned and what I've been continuing to learn 
is as a leader, many are really driven. They work really hard. The best ones have a real strong sense of purpose. And pragmatically, one is always thinking about the rest of the org, thinking about your customers, thinking about others, such that thinking about yourself and feeding yourself is really challenging. And I think lots of the executive coaches and the best leaders have a practice of making sure they do things to feed themselves. Anything from just taking walks during the day to having a meditation or mindfulness practice, different types of techniques help people be able to sustain their efforts. Because frankly, I mean, this is the real thing. We have some really hard things we're going to try and overcome in the next decade, and we need everybody's best. And so if a leader is at 10% thinking that, oh, I just need to kind of hold on. Nah, we need you. We need your 90 and, and 100%. And the best way to do that is to learn how to take care of yourself such that others can benefit from leadership and wisdom. I'd love to talk about this a little more. The book definitely gives pragmatic, practical examples that leaders can apply to improve what you refer to as your inner game. So I don't know if this is the point you're making, the inner game, so they can face more uncertainty and avoid burnout. Tell us about that. And also, I always think there's this no-do gap where, you know, we know these things, but we're not always practicing and doing them. And it, it could be just oh, yeah. because we've always done it. We've always said, no, 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 you just, to your point, just, just gut it out. What are your thoughts on this? So I think you're right. I mean, I certainly am the first person to say that even while writing the book, when I had really hard deadlines to get things done, were my practices of being mindful always 100%? No, they weren't. They, <laughs> I dropped them. And it's a very human thing. Over the last five or six years, I've started doing a thing called a purpose playbook and really trying to anchor on purpose. And what I have found is it's much, much more powerful because circumstances change over a year. Like, can you imagine doing a set of New Year's resolutions in January 2020? What would happen to them in March, right? It doesn't make any sense. Purpose, however, stays relatively constant if you can chip away at what it is. At the end of the year, I do a purpose playbook exercise. So one, I review the last year. I look at photos. I look at my calendar because you forget what happened last year. And I review those. I have tea or some wine or whatever. And I just kind of see what happened. I write down month. Oh, that happened. That happened. Eventually, I start to see themes. I start to see things that didn't work and things that did work. And there's certain patterns. At the end of it, it's like, ah, okay, I think I have a sense of what really worked well last year. What do I want to keep for next year? What do I want to throw out? What things do I want to look back on and say, wow, look how far I've come? Where does my future look like? Do any of these tech, any things I've learned have an impact on where I want to go? Once I write, then I start to come up with these themes. I write goals underneath them. My themes last year, for, I'll just give you one, was highest room or highest arena, which means can I get into the place where really great, talented people are at and be part of the conversation? I always learn a lot. It's like this podcast. I learn a lot from interacting with you and interacting with guests. How can I do more of that as preparation? Then I write goals. Okay, I want to be on these number of podcasts, or I want to do these meetings, or I want to appear in this way. Third step is I share it. Critical. 
We all know that if you have an accountability partner, you're more likely to do it. So I share my purpose playbook with people. We've been doing it for a bunch of years. The critical piece, which I have been really surprised by, is a friend of mine, Mamie Fox, gave me this, is to revisit it daily. So every day I do three things. I write down gratitude. What am I grateful for in those days? Second, I write down my goals. I usually do three, no more than three. I write them down every day. Goals for that day? The higher level goals, the themes, the bigger goals. And then I write down done. What did I do that day that's connected to those goals? Now, the middle part, I write down every day. It seems really repetitive, but here's what's happened. It has become really useful for making decisions because I think probably a lot of listeners are experienced. Sometimes you have an abundance of great choices. It's a little easy to say, no, I shouldn't do this or I should do that. But sometimes you have good choices. How do you pick between spending time with your friends and getting to sleep a little earlier, going on a trip for fun and going on a trip for relaxation? Like, how do you choose? The themes have been incredibly helpful in making those types of decisions. I go back to the theme and said, okay, does this have anything to do with being in the highest arena? No, it doesn't. I'm going to put that one down. I don't need to think that hard. I just go back to my core theme. So that repetition helps anchor me in what my core purpose is. And then I start to be able to align my life to that. I really like this. I I think in some level I've been doing something like this, but not realizing how powerful it is and maybe a little more informally than what you're saying, which I'd love to take it up a notch. I also think, Everett, goes back to, I think, your ability, and you said looking at patterns and things. I love that in this, you've talked about reflecting, looking back at patterns, taking stock. And I think you've also said your comment sometimes, and especially now when there's so much movement in the workforce, people can move from job to job or thing to thing. And maybe we're not taking as much stock or reflecting as we could so that we go into the next thing as prepared and ready and able to be successful. I've had a variety of different career changes from different domains and different contexts. Those are just the highlights, there's ones in between. And what I've found was that what helps me most is, frankly, to get out of the country, (laughs) Uh, to scramble my brain by forcing myself to speak a different language. Because when I come back to home, all the things that were patterns, that were habits, I see a lot more clearly. So when I'm in the habit or the pattern of the daily thing, I don't see it, but I go away. I am forced into a different environment and then come back. It's like, oh, why am I doing that? That's dumb. Get that out. In one of those trips, I learned something from a very interesting man. I'll share the brief version of this. I met a man who had this amazing career. He was born in Zimbabwe. I'm sorry. He was born in Rhodesia when it was called Rhodesia, not Zimbabwe. He studied to be a monk, Caucasian man in Vietnam, and he finished all but the last year. And this was in the early 60s. He decided he didn't want to do that anymore, left the order, and started an import-export business. Business was really successful. In his, He had a business partner in the 64-65 who one day says, I'm CIA, and you're going to do everything I say. And he said, 
uh, no, I got, he goes to the, he goes to the embassy and they say, we can't help you. Remember, it's 1965 in Vietnam. We recommend you leave the country, put everything you have in the suitcase and get. Spent the next two years furious because he left behind a couple million dollars in his business. He winds up being, over time, a leading manager for a, a Asian bank. So he had an incredible career, a successful career, but also a really winding one. And he said, so here's the thing, Everett. When I see people who are going from job to job and they don't take any breaks in between, I don't understand it. He said, it's like everybody has these skills and your job asks you for five of your 10 best skills, like tools in a toolbox. And you go to your next job. If you just do the same thing, they're going to ask you for those same five tools. And you never take a second to say, do I really like these tools? Are those tools the things I want to show the world? He said, instead, take some time and say, you know what? I never want to do this tool again. Put it in the toolbox. Take another tool out and say, yeah, I want to do this one in my next job. It takes time to reflect in between to be able to make that choice. Eventually, if you keep making a habit of it, the tools you present to the world start to reflect the tools that you want to bring to the world. People see you closer as who you want to be seen. And that takes repetition, it takes some practice, and it takes some time to reflect in between jobs. I love that story. I felt very gifted by that story. And it really is something I carry with me. And not be afraid to pace yourself and to go a bit slow to go fast. I love that. And the truth is, I should just be to say, there's some circumstances where you don't have time to take time between jobs. You have some bills and so forth and so on. But to the extent that one can or doing it during the job, uh, it, I think it pays off uh, over time. Absolutely. Nothing should stop you, even if you do move quickly, to do that reflection and to really take stock and pivot along the way. That's key to the journey. You had said in the book, I believe, that there are some good techniques for managing personal anxiety, which you said is a key leadership skill today and foreseeably going forward. There's so much anxiety, understandably. What are some thoughts on that? What are some tips, tools, techniques that you'd share? I think the first is to be really clear I'm not a medical professional, I'm not a psychologist, and so forth and so on. And seeking those resources, incredibly powerful step, not a sign of weakness, as a sign of power, of saying, hey, I want to get some help in different aspects of my life, either for a long time or a short time. That's amazing. And I've done that many times. The second, where I'm sort of more in my comfort zone, I'll just, there are many, but I'll talk about one, is I've had a mindfulness practice, meditation practice since 1993. And I failed at it for many years beforehand. I was able to really realize that my failure, oh, my mind is going all over the place. I realized that, no, actually, that's what it does. That's what the mind does. That's not a sign of failure. It's a sign of awareness. And I think the key story is, is something from Thich Nhat Hanh. Have you ever noticed when you're washing your dishes and all of a sudden a dish breaks and you're like, how did that happen? You know, it fell in the sink or whatever, or glass or whatever. Well, it's probably because you weren't paying attention. You're thinking of something else. You're talking to somebody, whatever. And the meditation that he said was, wash the dishes to wash the dishes. Make that 
washing, a meditation, getting it clean, really understanding that, being in the moment. And I realized, wow, meditation not only can be at any moment, it can be in ordinary moments. That shifted everything for me. Because now, if I'm in a tough meeting, I can drop into something ordinary. I can just watch my breathing. Or if I've had a tough day, sometimes I go and dig in the garden and make that a meditation. It's a little bit of work, but it's actually something physical. It takes me out of the screens. That is incredibly renewing, even if it's for 10 minutes in a day. I find that that reduces the anxiety, going back to your original point. Do you find too that practicing meditation, some of these things that we're talking about are coming more into their own, meaning leaders across both genders and are embracing it? It's not seen as, oh, there's that softer, you know, do, do you know what I mean by that? Absolutely. I concur. Far more leaders are talking about mindfulness. Google had the Search Inside Yourself program where an array of incredibly gifted practitioners went throughout the company. Um, there's Wisdom 2.0. There's a whole bunch of different aspects of this. Even I'll mention Chip Conley is doing a thing called uh, the Elders. Uh, I think it's called the Elders Institute, but it's really thinking about the wisdom of folks who are elders and doing it in a very focused way. All of these things. And, and going the other direction, my daughter was part of a teen meditation class on via Zoom. And so these are ways in which it's manifesting that mindfulness practices of various sorts are becoming uh, something that people can utilize. And then it's finding the right one for you. I love it. I worked for a leader. He's now uh, the chairman of the NASDAQ. Hi, Mike. <laughs> Who, tw uh, well, 10 years at least ago, well, he'd been meditating for quite a long time as just part of his daily life as a CEO and was on boards at the time as well. And I watched it and, I, you know, we, we were out of a big M&A activity, got on a plane and I'm in the mode of, ah, was, we were all like, ah, you know, excited. And all of a sudden he just went quiet and started meditating in the noisiest plane you could imagine. And I thought, what is happening here? And then he just opens his eyes and is all charged. And and I thought, what a role model and what how fascinating. But that was clearly, I think at the time, ahead, ahead of the game. It's great to see across, as you say, ages and all over the place that it's coming into the fold as a brilliant benefit for leading. Yeah. And it's a practice. It's not, it's never going to be perfect. It's a practice, something you can return to. And I was just thinking about your plane story. What's really fascinating about it is not only did he must have had a very strong practice, or he does, but you got, he was willing to do it in front of you, which meant as you got, he's modeling that and you still remember that moment. It's like, oh, wow, huh? This is a version of leadership in a high, high, um, charged, environment. Huh, maybe there's something to that. Huh, is right. I haven't advanced myself as far <laughs> as I'd like, but, no, but, but remembering that story and talking to you, it inspires me to, as you say, it's a journey and it's a practice. I mentioned earlier, you had a work from home first culture and environment that's in the company that's in trust, I believe, uh, for quite some time. Thoughts on, I mean, this is such a big conversation right now, and where is it all going to net out, and what's it going to look like going forward, and the pros and cons. Any thoughts just on remote work and 
sure. how you guys led the way back then and why it mattered. Yeah. So I'll start with how we did it. It was really to solve a problem. And it was a very simple one. We asked myself, Mark Ferlot, where had started something. We asked our third co-founder, Jen Leach, to join us as a founder. She said, that sounds great, except my husband just got a fellowship and we are going to be in Europe for the next 18 months. Not exactly the answer we expected, right? Uh, so we thought, okay, well, how do we get her wisdom as part of the team anyway? So we said, okay, look, can you have Wi-Fi in every place you are? Can we make our work transparent so we know what we're doing, no matter where we are and what time zone? And do we have the integrity to do what we say we're going to do? We started from there. And then we built the systems, not built the systems, but we used systems, Pivotal Tracker and Skype at the time, and then eventually Zoom to say, okay, here's how we're going to connect. And so all the principles were already there. How do you stay connected? That's the key piece. How do you build systems to facilitate that? And how do you attract the right people with the right kind of integrity who can do the work in a remote setting? So. And then that scaled and scaled, and now we're about 140 people, and it's still been remote first. So what do I think about it now? I think it's two years in. There's a lot of folks who I think are still saying, oh, this is going to end, and we're going to go all back to the office. I think the train has left the station. There are too many people who've had the experience of not having to commute. There are a lot of people who have realized, wait, I don't like the din of an open office. I know there's a lot of study on the impact of an open office on women and being has some negative negative experiences and being able to not feel judged at work because you're now at home. There's also challenges, obviously. People have extended their working day. If you don't have room for home offices, all those other things. But as a leader of a company, frankly, if you're trying to gut your way through this or ignore that things have changed, I think you're sticking your head in the sand. Now, what's the solution? Some are going to be hybrid. Some are going to go remote first. Some actually need to be in office. Where I think this is going to go, it's already changing labor markets. Labor market this summer, this this past year has been insane in terms of the amount of changes that are happening. Salaries are all over the place. Two, a lot of companies are realizing, wait, I can. there's talent everywhere. So in some ways, that's really great from a DEI perspective because someone who's based in Oakland we knew a long time ago, there's talent everywhere. Let's go to Atlanta to make sure that we get the, into those networks of talented African-American people or Chicago or New York. People who are Latino, Latinx, Latina are not in necessarily San Francisco, but they're in LA. They're in other places. And there are places, we have folks in 30 different states. People are realizing that. So that's bad for us, but that's great for the people who earn the right to be recognized for their talent, no matter where they are. I think the really interesting thing that someone talked about yesterday in a meeting is for folks who are going hybrid, if the hybrid model is central, they have a central headquarters and then different places elsewhere, you may have the ability to have remote or hybrid workers in different places working from home or satellite offices. But the network is the network of influence, mentoring, opportunity, 
still centralized in the home office. A leader there would have to start thinking really explicitly about what are the networks of mentorship and and you almost do network theory. What are the networks of mentorship and how do you either bring people in or make sure that those power networks are distributed across different places? That's a really emerging question that I've heard some interesting talk about. I love that. You've shared a little bit on your background, and I'm also curious, is there another lesson or a learning that you had yourself as a leader from your own career that you might share with us? So we had we hired two new senior leaders at Trust in the last year, and they left before we really had the opportunity to get their best work. And we had to do some soul searching about, well, what was that? One of the things that we realized was we had kind of gotten people in and said, okay, you're great. We're going to give you a little bit of onboarding. Here's where the company is. Here's some people to meet. You're good at what you do. Go for it. That's not enough. And as we reflected on it and asked around and other CEOs and other leaders and so forth, the conclusion that we, re- we, we learned and what I'm learning is onboarding is measured, especially at the senior level, in quarters and years, not weeks. It's not just a couple of trainings and so forth. It's understanding who this person is, where their weak hand and their strong hand is. They could be very successful, but we all have weak hands and strong hands. How do we build systems to support and to enable people to thrive? How do you prepare the organization for the changes that a new leader is going to make? Because if it was good the way it was, you wouldn't need necessarily a new leader. How do you prepare the organization for that new interest and experience? And then how, particularly as a leadership team, how do you enable the entire group to gel? That is a year process, and the onboarding is quarters. We are sufficiently chastened this year, painfully so in some cases. This year, we're actually looking forward to the next crop of leaders with that knowledge in mind. I think we'll be much more successful, and they will be much more successful, which is the most important part. Fantastic. Thank you for sharing that. Everett, how about something that you had taken advantage of somewhere throughout your journey to date that really has served you or something maybe you wished you'd taken more advantage of? Yeah, I'll I'll do one of both. We talked about the first one a little earlier, is reaching for the highest room. So first to go to college, there are lots lots of reasons, lots of people who are just as talented as I who said, oh, I don't want to go to some place as challenging as Duke. I decided, let me let me try it. Uh, the worst that can happen, right? And I'll just grit my teeth and, and try and hold on. But it wound up being incredibly successful. Same with playing on a Duke National Championship team. Of course, I dreamed of that. But I didn't go, I'll just say, let's just say my first practice, my freshman year, it felt like I was in a horse and buggy and everybody else was in Formula One race cars. They fought faster, they moved faster. And I was just looking around, not knowing what to do. And I was like, okay, (laughs) I got a lot of work to do. But it was about reaching for that place just beyond where I thought I could go. And the benefit of that is not only winning the championship, but I have lifelong friends. We actually still have a thread, a messaging thread, 30 years later, whenever there's an event or there's a holiday or there's something going on in soccer, we, we keep that. So I've gotten so many benefits from that. The thing I didn't take advantage of, when mentors say they to call them, they mean it. 
So when I was younger, in some cases still happened. There's a part of me that said, nah, you're busy. You're just saying that. You're, you're just being nice. And so I often wouldn't follow up. I'm now in a position where I'm uh, a person who mentors folks who coming out of college say, hey, how do you do what you do? And when I say it, I actually mean it. I'm actually delighted to be helpful, delighted to sort of open a door, particularly if there's a connection, delighted to understand what this person's about and hopefully connect them in a way that they don't, so I can accelerate the gifts that they already have. And I had no idea that was the case from all the mentors that probably reached out to me and wondered, why isn't ever calling me? Like, jeez. You've been on many boards. How has it impacted you, do you think? The way boards have impacted me as a leader is, first, the job of a board is governance. The job of a board is, you know, is measured in the care for the organization, looking after the stakeholders in that organization. That's an important mindset to understand. It's very, very distinct. So one that I'm learning most from is I'm on the board of care.org. Uh, it's a gender-powered, locally-led, globally-scaled humanitarian organization. It's been around for 70 years. The care package was actually from CARE. Um, CARE delivered care packages across Western Europe after World War II. It's an honor to be there. The other people on the board are from politics, from nonprofits, military, media, consulting, private equity, global CEOs from all over the world. I can't help but just be in a room and soak up how people are talking and not learn something incredibly valuable. The one I think is particular, I'm learning, I've learned how these very experienced leaders in different domains pay attention to certain things and let other things go. The selective attention and saying, what is the most important thing to attend to right now? And how do we make sure that we understand it? address it, and take action. That has been huge. That's fabulous. One last question for you. What might be a piece of career advice, something that may have stayed with you throughout your career, something that you would share with us? Sure. The one I'll focus on at the moment is play the long game. A couple of examples just from today. My mother had a 30-year career as a programmer at IBM but she started right at the bottom and no one expected that, but she played the long game and built her career over time and learned and learned and learned. I got a chance to have a national championship. I've been playing since I was age six. That was 15 years, 16 years of development before having something amazing happen. As a parent, certainly playing the long game is part of the thing because why else would you keep changing diapers, right? Like you, all the things of rocking somebody to sleep is about playing the long game of having them feel like there's a place of home and comfort. And then with trust, we are about to celebrate our official decade. We decided not to go for venture funding. Let's go for the moon in two years. One, because it was the right business decision, but also we think that there is a place for sustainable growth companies. Congratulations on the on the milestone. That's amazing. Thank you. Thank you so much, Everett. There's been so much richness here, and we we were able to learn from you as a leader. And I'm very excited, and hope everyone else is to check out your book, 
move to the edge to Claret Center. All the details will be in the show notes. Thank you so much for being so open and inspiring. And we just really so appreciate all that you shared with us. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. And I really appreciate your questions, your willingness to engage with me in this particular way. It takes uh, two of us to get the richness out. So I really appreciate your attention and your, your caring for this interview. For more resources on this topic, visit us on modern-career.com and on social media at modern underscore career. We'll include all the sources noted in this episode in our show notes. Look forward to talking again very soon. Thank you.